0: Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3? And the fellows have some Bibles so that everyone can follow along as we look together at Hebrews 3. So as Aaron and Jean and Larry make their way down the aisle, get their attention if you need a copy of the Scriptures, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. Hebrews 3. It has been my privilege on many occasions to share the good news of Jesus and the work that he has done on our behalf to those who are gravely ill, and in some cases, just moments from eternity. And often the individual will be thinking thoughts like, it's too late for me, I've done too much, I can't make amends now. But because the gospel, because the good news of Jesus Christ is completely based on the grace of God, then I am able to say to that individual with absolute confidence, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. The grace of God displayed in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins is extended to anyone until he or she takes their last breath. It is true that we cannot undo what we've done and especially in our final moments But god's grace in christ is wide enough to cover the sin of all who come to him No matter at what point in their lives they do that And i've seen many of these folks receive the grace of god in their final moments As they believed what the bible teaches. It's not how you start It's how you finish And so in Scripture, people like the thief on the cross who were converted in their final moments are examples of that truth. But there's another application of that truth that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And it's this. That those who do start with Christ do indeed finish. That is, those who start with Him at whatever point in their lives that occurs who have come to Christ, who begin to walk with Him, who are genuinely converted, born again, saved, all of the synonyms that the Bible uses for our new life in Christ. Those for whom there has been a genuine conversion to Christ will walk with Him in life. They will run the race that He places before them. And they will cross the finish line with full assurance of spending eternity with Him. For those in their final moments who need to come to Christ for the first time, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. But for those of us who are alive and at least physically well, we need to be reminded that the Bible teaches that those who start do finish and they finish well. Now, the opposite is true. Conversely, those who fail to cross the finish line with Christ reveal, according to the Bible, that they never began the race with him in the first place. No matter their apparently false profession of faith. We must, if we profess Christ, finish and finish well. The Bible records the story of a people who began well. They began very well. It's the familiar story of a people for whom God acted in mighty ways to deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. After nine miraculous signs, God performed a tenth that brought the most powerful nation and the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, to their knees. On one fateful night, God struck down the firstborn of all Egypt. But he passed over the homes of those who obeyed his instructions. Pharaoh then summoned Moses and he commanded the people of Israel to leave. He even asked for a blessing from Moses at the end of all of that. Notice what the Bible tells us. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "Up, Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me the next day, about a million and a half people left Egypt. It was the end of their 430 years of bondage. They left with their livestock. And they left carrying in a box the bones of Joseph. Fulfilling Joseph's dying wish that his bones be buried back in Palestine. And they left unexpectedly rich as well. Because the Egyptians were really glad to see them go. And here's what the Bible tells us. The Egyptians gave them what they asked for. And so they plundered the Egyptians. And God led this people in their journey. With a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You all may recall that there was this ill-fated attempt by Pharaoh to chase them down and to re-enslave them. But with their backs pinned against the Red Sea. God once again acted in a mighty way on their behalf. Moses stretched forth his hand. God parted the sea. His people followed the pillar on a dry path through the sea and on to safety. Pharaoh's army followed. They would have caught them, but God made their chariots swerve out of control. Pharaoh's army realized too late that God was fighting for Israel. And as they turned to flee at daybreak, Moses again stretched out his hand. And the sea engulfed the armies of Pharaoh. God was most certainly with this group of people. Moses' sister, Miriam, took her tambourine. And the women of Israel followed her and they celebrated. And here's what the Bible says they did. They said, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. So one commentator describes their beginning this way. Wild exaltation gripped the people. What a fabulous beginning. What hopes. What dreams. Soon they were going to be in the promised land. They were going to bury Joseph's bones. And there forever they would enter their rest. It began all so well. And you can think about things in your life that have begun all so well, can't you? And all the dreams... Starting a relationship series at eleven o'clock, but many could testify that you felt that way about your marriage at the beginning. It all started so well. You've been wondering for a long time now what went wrong. It all looked so good. It was all going so well. It began marvelously, but it ended poorly. Of the over one million adults who began so well, only two, two, ever made it to the promised land, and that was 40 years later. The rest all died, disappointed corpses out in the desert. And friends, the clear lesson is that it is possible to begin well, but to end poorly. The book of Hebrews is written to professing followers of Jesus and followers of Jesus who are undergoing difficulty. And the concern for the writer of Hebrews is that in their own wilderness, as it were, the difficulties that they were undergoing, that they would repeat the errors of their forefathers and mothers. Many of them had had their own spiritual exodus from slavery to sin, and they could no doubt describe their salvation experience, in dramatic and beautiful fashion. But now they're undergoing hardship. And the question is, will they finish well? And to lay out that concern, our passage in Hebrews 3 quotes from another part of your Bible, from the first part of your Bible. And it's a passage that all of those professing Christians who were of Jewish descent, and that's why this book is called Hebrews. It's written to the Hebrews, those of Jewish descent who, though, were ostensibly professing followers of Jesus. And they all would have known this passage. The opening line of the passage served as a call on every Sabbath day worship in the evening in the synagogue. And notice verse number 7 of Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And those words were heard week after week and year after year as a call to them to carefully listen to the voice of God. And their ears would perk up at the sound of those words. And friends, I'm here to tell you that our ears should perk up at the sound of those words as well. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not continue to harden your hearts. Although it's something that was written 1,500 years before our passage in Hebrews 3 was penned, I want you to notice the beginning of verse 7. It says, the Holy Spirit says, When the words were written now 3,500 years ago, To the first of those who heard them. And then when they were repeated for centuries as part of the the Sabbath worship. And then when they were penned in this book of Hebrews 2,000 years ago. And when we read them today. This one thing is true in all of those times of history. It's still the same God the Holy Spirit. Who was speaking to his people. That he had brought out of the land of Egypt and it was God the Holy Spirit who was speaking to those who received this letter called Hebrews and it's God the Holy Spirit who is speaking to us today and here's what he says verses 7 and 8 today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. Now, there are two key words in that passage that will help us understand what it means to harden one's heart and thus not finish well, as the Bible requires. Those words are rebellion and testing in verse 8. And I want you to notice that the passage in verses 7 through 9 is in quotation marks because... It is a quote from Psalm number 95 in the first part of your Bible. And Psalm number 95 uses important words in place of rebellion and testing. Here's what Psalm 95 says on the screen. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, which means rebellion or quarreling. As you did that day at Massah, which means testing in the desert. Now, what is all of that about? These words from Psalm 95, Meribah and Massah, are from an incident recorded still earlier in your Bible, in the book of Exodus. Early in their journey, after having left Egypt, the Israelites had run out of water and they started quarreling with Moses. And Moses used these two words Meribah and Massah in response to their quarreling about their circumstances now in the desert. At the bottom of the screen Moses says why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test those two words quarreling and testing and then the Bible tells us that Moses struck a rock on God's command. It gave water to Israel. And then the story concludes with this statement. He called the place Massah, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And What's interesting about this, is that this happens at the beginning of their sojourn, toward the beginning of their sojourn in the wilderness. This word meribah is used another time. In Numbers chapter 20, toward the end of their 40-year journey, they're quarreling still. And mention of this quarreling at the beginning and also at the end of their wandering shows that this conduct was repeated many times over that 40 years the hardening that took place in them in the wilderness and hear this friends and can take place in you and in me in our difficulty is rooted in unbelief. We do not believe what we profess to believe. And it shows in our quarreling, in our rebellion, in our Testing of the Lord. Notice the question that they asked. Is the Lord among us or not? Well, have you had any evidence of that? Is the Lord among them? Did the Lord do these things? And the question for you and for me in your difficulty is... Is the Lord among us or not? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your trial? Do you believe that in your difficult relationship? Do you believe that in prosperity and in want? Is the Lord among us or not? And it's a test of whether or not we really, really believe what we say. And for these people and for their children and grandchildren and their descendants and in people like us, there is often this fair-weather faith. It's good until the first trial comes along and then it dissolves in unbelief. And friends, we're to learn from verses 7 through 11 of this passage, we are all susceptible to unbelief. It's a scary warning. But it's so important that the writer of Hebrews gives no less than six warnings throughout this book. Warning passages. This is the second of those. About the propensity to disbelieve the God in whom we profess to believe. And so think about the difficult circumstance that you're in right now. A relationship, a job, no job, an illness, whatever it is. The circumstance is not what you want. The circumstance was not what they wanted. They wanted water. You remember later, we want a different diet. We want different food. We want to go back to Egypt. It's not what we want. And whatever you've got going on in your life, it's just not what you want. He's not what you want. She's not what you want. My material goods are not what I want. Your church is not what you want. Your pastor is not what you want. Whatever. It's not what you want. And so you do and I do what they did. We quarrel. And we grumble. The sin of the wilderness of undesirable circumstances. Did you hear that phrase, friends? The sin of the wilderness of... Of undesirable circumstances. Every last one of us has them. But the sin in that wilderness of undesirable undesirable circumstance was for them and is for us rooted in unbelief. They ask, is the Lord among us or not? And it expresses itself then. Back then and now in very definite ways. We're going to see that failure to believe that God was still God. That God was not contrary to what our own desires, our own idolatrous desires. It's not what I want. And therefore I grumble, complain, disbelieve God. But God was still God. Not asleep at the switch in the midst of their circumstances or yours and mine. But because they bought into that lie. Because they disbelieved. It led them to contempt. And irreverence for the things of God. And it was seen in their complaining against God and against His faithful servants. And in turn, the heart of unbelief not only manifests itself in grumbling, complaining, but in out-and-out disobedience. Now let me give you a little bit more of the history of what happened with these folks who disbelieved at the beginning, at the end, and at various points throughout their journey. For the psalmist who wrote Psalm 95, that's quoted in our passage in Hebrews 3. The beginning of this hard-heartedness came in events that were recorded in yet another passage of your Old Testament, Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And you all remember, at the beginning of their wandering in the wilderness, the Lord with a mighty hand leads them out of Egypt. And early on in their journey, he tells them, I want you to go into the land that I have promised you, and I want you to take this land. Now this God, who with a mighty hand led them out, leads them to the place that he promised. And he says, I want you to take this place. But they decide, we need to come up with a better plan. We don't think fulfilling the will of God is a good idea today. So we'll make a better plan. We're going to send 12 spies in to see if it's okay. They send the twelve spies. You all know the story. And only two of them come back and say we can do what God has said. Ten of them say it simply cannot be done. The land cannot be taken. In fact, they say this: the land we explored devours those who are living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They're too big for us. They're too powerful us for us. And they had asked the question, is there a God among us us or not? And right at the beginning, they're answering that, aren't they? We don't believe God. We don't believe God can do this. And so their unbelief begins very early on. And God answered them. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs that I performed performed among them? They were unbelieving, refusing to believe. What an astounding thing to consider. They had seen these twin miracles of the Passover and of the Exodus with a mighty hand. But we don't believe them. You say, you know, I wouldn't have been like that had I had a Passover in my life. Have you had that? We're going to see at the end of our time together that everybody who's come to Jesus has come to Christ, our Passover, he is called. And you have had an exodus, a marvelous exodus, where God with a mighty hand has moved upon your heart to move you out of slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. You've had these marvelous things done in your life. It all began so well. But then difficulties came. The wilderness came. And then it was a matter of, are we going to believe there is a Lord among us or not? And they still had the daily provision of the cloud by day and the fire by night. They had manna and they had quail from heaven. Does God provide for you? It may not be what you want, but friends, does God provide for you? Has God always provided for you? And yet, we don't believe. And how do I know we don't believe? How do I know when I don't believe? It's when I do what these people did, when I treat God with contempt, which spawns its ugly stepchildren of negativism. and a faithlessness that makes small mountains unclimbable, miniature seas uncrossable. This negativism has a twin sister called grumbling. And in fact, in this account in Numbers chapter 14, no less than four times the word grumbling is used of what the people did. This grousing, this grumbling, this grimacing, it comes natural, friends, to a, a faith that's fading. I don't quite believe it anymore. I used to believe it strong. I still believe a little bit, but it's it's fading, and that spawns quarreling, which was the daily menu, at Maraba and Massah and all in points in between. And then finally, what happens? when we lose faith, when we disbelieve, is there a Lord among us or not, when we start to step our foot down that path, it ultimately leads to disobedience. And I might add a justified disobedience in our own mind. I mean, after all, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be doing this thing if it weren't for what happened to me. If it weren't for what they did to me. We justify and rationalize in our own minds. You would do the same thing too if you were in the circumstance I'm in. So it's okay for me to quarrel and to grumble and to disbelieve God. That's never the case. But we rationalize it and justify it in our own minds. So friends, God does not leave us in the dark on this. He gives us very clear illustrations from the lives of His people in the past, of the telltale signs of a hardened heart. It begins with unbelief. Can God really work in my life with this person, in this circumstance, at this place, at this time? Can God do that? Do I believe that? If the answer is equivocal, if it's doubting, Certainly if it's no, then we've set our foot on the path from unbelief to contempt and it's negativism and it's grumbling and it's quarreling and ultimately it's disobedience. We're going to move on and all of God's people were happy about that. But let me ask you before we do, friends, as I ask myself, what does your behavior dictate What does it indicate? Is it it a hardened, unbelieving heart? Or in the midst of the wilderness of your undesirable circumstances, does your behavior indicate a blessed tenderness of a faithful heart? And today is the day that we hear his voice. And today is the day, by God's grace, when we conclude in just a bit, That God's people are going to do business with Him. We're going to bow. And we're going to repent. And we're going to confess of our unbelief. And the resulting hardness of heart. And the justification of our disobedience. Friends, every last one of us, I say in your outline, is susceptible to the sin of unbelief. We have a merciful God. Thanks be to God. And here's what God said to those people. He says, I have forgiven them, as you've asked. But nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see that rest. Ah, a warning indeed. Indeed every last one of us is susceptible to the sin of unbelief. I want you to notice as well in your outline that we are all responsible to maintain belief. As you think about illustrations of this sort of beginning well but not ending well, not finishing well, this Exuberance that the Israelites had, the exuberance that perhaps at one time you had for the Lord, for your circumstances, for other things in your life. And now it's fallen away and you've begun to rationalize your disobedience. Jesus spoke of that kind of person who makes an immediate profession of faith, but there's no lasting root there. And Jesus said, the one who received the seed, that is the seed of the word of God, he had explained. That fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So who is this? This is the person who wants to get baptized. Pastor, I want to get baptized. I want to follow Jesus. I profess Him as my Savior, my Lord. I answer publicly and answer to the question you give me. Do you promise to follow Jesus in obedience all the days of your life? Yes. And then some difficulty comes. And they fall away. We have sadly seen that happen in our own midst. Some of you didn't do it quite that quickly. Your foot is on the path of doing that now. We're all susceptible to unbelief, but we are all responsible, the Bible teaches, to maintain belief. That means that, verse number 12, we must protect our hearts. See to it, brothers, verse 12, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Understand this, brothers and sisters. That if you have, if I have the telltale signs of unbelief. That I am complaining, I'm quarreling. I have a joyless attitude. I'm disobeying, I'm justifying and rationalizing it. I'm not doing the things that I once did. Slipping away, justifying it all the while. If we're doing that, it is not because of what someone did to you. It is not because of your circumstance. It is always and only because of our hearts. That's why we must see to it that our hearts, verse 12, do not give way to an unbelieving heart. It's your heart. It's my heart. We cannot blame before God anyone or anything For the disobedience that we attempt to rationalize. We must protect our hearts. And verse 13 tells us that we must help each other in this process. But encourage one another daily as long as it's cold today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. One of the patterns I see with folks who have set their foot on this path of unbelief and ultimately disobedience. Is they begin to withdraw themselves from God's people. What, me? Quarrel and grumble? Never. I got nobody to crumble to, to grumble and quarrel to. I don't hang around with those people. I mean, I used to be really involved and I used to participate, but, you know, those people have changed. Ever heard that? Ever thought that? Ever said that? And some of you are living like that. Have you ever considered this, friends? It's a hard issue. It's not what other people did to you. That's what the Bible says. Have you ever considered that perhaps it's not the people that you think who have changed? Is it possible that your unbelief has changed you? That's what God says. And now you view them differently. And you withdraw yourself from them Contrary to what God says, encourage one another. The assumption is you're there with one another. You're participating with one another. You're helping one another. You're encouraging one another because we are all susceptible to the sin of unbelief. We're all responsible to maintain belief, protect our hearts, help each other. Verse 14, persevere in the midst of trial. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. So God says, you finish well. I wasn't just blowing smoke at the beginning when I said, those who start with Christ, they finish with Christ. And they finish well. God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, says that in verse 14. If you're shaken, and I hope some of us are, if you're shaken Right now, by your own attitude of unbelief and the telltale signs that you see of that, the good news is this. God Almighty has you here at this moment right now to hear this message for you to come back to Him. And we'll offer opportunity for that. Friends, when we fail to believe, When we fail to believe God in our circumstances, not in spite of our circumstances, in our circumstances, the wilderness of undesirable circumstances that all of us have, when we fail to believe God, we are in great danger. You have the circumstances and the relationships of life pressing hard on you. And pressing hard on me. And the temptation is to point outward. Not looking at our own hearts, but to point outward at them and at it. And disbelieve God that he can take care of them and it. And because we do that, we rationalize our disobedience. And when should I act to repent? Twice in this passage, it says the time to repent is today. Not another moment. Today. It is my prayer that many of us will confess and repent before God. We're all susceptible to unbelief. We're all responsible to maintain belief, thirdly and quickly. We're all required, friends, to learn from the past. Those last few verses were given three pairs of questions, six questions in three pairs. Each pair asks a question and then the second question answers it. Notice with me in verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? That's the first question. And the answering questions in the last part of verse 16. Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And the point is this. Everyone who died in the desert had begun in the glorious exodus and all of its glorious expectations. These are the people we're talking about. People like you, people like me. Here's the second set of questions, verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? And here's the answer. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the deserts? And the point is this. The men who angered God for 40 years were those who did not believe that he could provide for them. For them. Though he had led them out of Egypt with great hope. And it's a warning, friends, that high hopes will not suffice. There must be belief. And then here's the third set of questions. In verse 18. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? The answer is it was to those who disobeyed. And the point is this. Unbelief leads to action as it always does. We ultimately disobey. And so I conclude with these questions to you, friends. Have you experienced a spiritual exodus in Jesus? Do we claim Jesus to be our true Passover, our lamb without blemish and without spot who gave his life for us? Do we claim in baptism, which the Bible presents as the antitype to the crossing of the Red Sea, do we claim a baptism in Jesus? Do we claim to spiritually feed on Jesus by faith as Israel was fed by manna from heaven and was given drink by water from the rock? Do we claim to look for a heavenly rest, the ultimate spiritual counterpart of the promised land? Do we claim all those things? Most of us here do. The question then is, do we really believe? I want you to look at one last passage, if you'll turn in your New Testament, To 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be done. It's page 635, for those of you that have the Bibles that the fellows were distributing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 635. Verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the deserts. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Will you heed the warning, dear friend, that God Almighty gives to you in this sacred moment? He promises that if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to bow before the Lord in just a moment, and we're going to do business with God, confessing our hard hearts, rooted in unbelief that God can take care of him or her or it, the undesirable circumstance that is my wilderness. But friends, in order to finish the journey, you have to start the journey. And you start by coming to Jesus as your Savior and bowing before Him as your Lord. So what do I do? I realize that I have sinned against a holy God. I recognize that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin and I repent of my sin. Lord, I want to follow You. I want to go Your way, not my way and receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow, many of us will be confessing and repenting our own unbelief and its manifestations in our lives. But some of you will be coming to Jesus for the first time. And you say from your heart to God in your own words, there's no magical incantation, no formula. This is just a sample prayer where you cry out to God to save you a sinner. Let's bow.